All right, everybody, welcome to episode two of the All In Podcast uh, with Jason and Chamath. Some basic ground rules here. If you're not into speculation, you don't like to debate, you don't like to question authority, uh, and you don't like to get a shit ton of inside information, I'm going to actually turn the podcast off right now and go download the daily from the New York Times or All Things Considered or some other bullshit. But uh, we're here to do speculating and talking about inside information and the real deal. With me, as always, my co-host, Chamath Polyhapatia, if you don't know how to pronounce it, Polly. Hapa Tia. Uh, Chamath, how are you doing? You holding up okay? I am doing fabulously well. We are in week four of our lockdown sheltering in place here. You losing your mind? Uh, I'm not because uh, I'm fortunate to be in the suburbs. I think if I was cooped up in an, uh, in an apartment in the city, I would feel uh, a lot worse than I do right now. But there's a lot of fresh air. The weather's finally turned. It's not raining as much. So we get to see the sun a little bit. Makes a big difference. Yeah. Can you imagine 15, 20 years ago, hold up in an apartment with three kids who are home from school? Like these people who are in a city, they must be going insane. I mean, there's so much value to visiting New York. But if you're stuck there in a in a quarantine lockdown, I've, uh, I don't know what I'd do. All right. Well, we got a great guest uh, today. Why don't you introduce our guest, Jamath? Well, we are really lucky here. This is a, a person who I've known now for, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years. What I would call him is one of my best show ponies. I have ridden this motherfucker up and down in everything he's done. He has made me so much money. It's like owning the publishing rights to the YouTube back catalog. This is how prolific this guy is. It's uh, like owning the Beatles back catalog, right? You're like Michael like Jackson. The backlog. You is, bought uh, the- so, so David Sachs, though, no, all kidding aside, David Sachs is one of the most incredible people that we know, one of our closest friends. Um, big bit of a background on David. He uh, almost became a lawyer, um, but uh, dropped out of law school. Um, after going to Stanford and uh, worked uh, with Peter Thiel at PayPal and uh, was the chief operating officer there, left PayPal, uh, moved to Los Angeles, uh, unsuccessfully uh, kept his virginity, found a way to not get laid as a movie producer in Hollywood, which <laughs> seems to be impossible. Moment, but he, David found a way of doing it. Um, produced the movie, um, one of the best known uh, movies of that generation called Thank You for Smoking. Um, then uh, moved back up here, started Genie, pivoted, started Yammer, um, sold that for more than a billion dollars to uh, Microsoft um, and became, during that time, frankly, one of the most unsung heroes uh, of company founders and uh, was a prolific investor in some of the most well-known iconic businesses uh, of this last generation, Airbnb, um, Uber, um, Slack, uh, the list goes on and on, and now is the co-founder of Craft Ventures, which is essentially uh, David's early stage venture business where he um, helps a lot of really great companies um, get to the next uh, level and frankly, the level that he's been playing at for a while. Uh, Despite all of that, again, I just see him as uh, a show pony. Um, yeah, some money printing someone. machine. If you if you can get this, in on that fund, if you can get in on those companies, you're going to do well. Sachs is an operating machine. Uh, welcome to the program. David Sachs. David well, Sachs. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you holding up, uh, Sachs, just personally, family, everything, companies, just generally, uh, psychologically? How is this impacting you? Um, you know, I think um, 
we're, we're, we're all fortunate to be safe. And, um, you know, we, we started paying attention to, to, to the virus, I guess, on in February because of Twitter tech. You know, there are a bunch of people on the tech ecosystem who started tweeting very alarming things and in February or even going as far back as like January 30th. And I didn't know for sure if they were right, but some of them were friends of mine. And so I, we took it seriously and we started doing work from home, I think on March 1st. And we've all been kind of self-isolated since then. And um, fortunately, everyone has been safe and, um, you know, hold, holding it pretty well. Saxipoot, tell uh, tell everybody on the pod, um, our uh, group chat, and um, basically what it is, um, what we do on that group chat, and um, uh, what you think about it. Yeah, so I mean, basically, our our poker group and sort of extended poker group, which is about um, I don't know, it's probably about twenty players who rotate in and out of our poker game. We have a chat group and. Um, we used to just talk about cards and stuff like that, but uh, but very rapidly it became a, a place to share information about the virus and the response and what was going to happen. And the remarkable thing is that whatever we talk about ends up becoming like it's like everyone else figures it out about a week or two later. And I think it has helped us stay about a week or two ahead of the curve on this thing. Has it has it generally been mentally reassuring or has it amplified your anxiety talking about it all the time in that chat? Um, well, the interesting thing is that we have people in that chat who are very optimistic. We have people who are very pessimistic. We have people in between and then we have people who swing around quite a bit. And, um, so I think you get like all the perspectives. Um, and I think, I guess my view of, of the future is that very hard to try and figure out what's going to happen. You have to think about it in terms of scenarios. Um, and so the, you know, the chat group helps, you know, understand like what those, scenarios you know might look like so where would you describe each of us then on the positive negative and then swingy you're you're in which camp are you swingy um so so i think the three basic scenarios are v u and and l and um jason i would describe you as 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 a v um i think chamath is closer to the u which is the, the most pessimistic uh, sorry, the, the L is the most pessimistic, and then the U is sort of somewhere in between. And um, I, I sort of swing between the U and the L, um, but um, but I also understand the case for the V. Uh, and, and 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 those initials really refer to the shape of the recovery to come and how quickly we'll we'll come out of this. So, David, before we drill down into your beliefs on the future, let's talk about the past. Um, what do you think this entire episode has shown us, whether it's from a public health perspective or an economic perspective, but how would you summarize your view of the world as it's been revealed to you in the past two months? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, what, what what it really should you know we live most of our lives during you know the, these relatively calm periods and then our lives get redefined by these you know apocal events um, and uh, and you know we're not really wired for this this rate of change um, I think it was Lenin who said something like there there's some decades when nothing happens and there's some weeks where decades happen and mm -hmm. um, 
And I think that that's basically what what's happening here. And it feels like, I mean, a little bit, the last thing that was like this was, was, was nine 11 where, you know, you woke up that morning, saw the, the twin towers coming down on TV and you realize that we were now in a different era and, um, something like that's happening here as well, just in, in slower motion. What do you think, um, the government did right? And what do you think that the government did wrong? Well, I mean, um, you know, li limiting the flights in from for Wuhan or China was a good initial step, but after that, um, it seemed like the response was very slow and um, and and sort of um, disbelieving and kind of incredulous. And, and and we've seen this basically everywhere. The initial response of just about every country, uh, with a few notable exceptions, um, in in Asia that had previous experience with SARS, but. Um, but what we've seen in just about every country is that nobody believes it's going to happen to them until it happens to them. And then even in the United States, um, you know, it's, 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 it's like no one believes it's going to happen in their city until someone in their social network gets, gets the virus. And then all of a sudden they take it seriously. And so there's almost been this like, it's like this slow moving train wreck where you see it coming and people are just a little bit too slow to react. And, you know, the problem is, it's all about the doubling time. So if the virus doubles, you know, every two or three days, um, in the absence of any action at all, maybe even doubles every day in a, in a very density like New York City, just waiting two or three weeks can make a thousand X difference, um, in, you know, it's somewhere between, I guess, 10 X and a thousand X difference, depending on the doubling time, whether if you wait two weeks or three weeks. Um, I saw an article on, there's a bunch of articles now talking about um, why has New York been hit so hard and California ha has been relatively mild. And, um, and and the articles were saying, you know, California only declared shelter in place one week ahead of New York. How can it be doing so much better? And they're looking for all these different causes and explanations. And, you know, even one week makes a huge difference. If in New York, um, New York's been hit about 12 times harder than California, but if the doubling time is just two days, um, one week is a 12 X difference. That's how the exponential uh, exponentiality works. And so like being a, a week, by, uh, you know, or two weeks or three weeks behind the curve is incredibly costly. How do you break down, um, local government versus federal government and the action there? And is America's architecture with states rights and powers a benefit in this case, or, um, is it a negative? Because we did see the blue states take it very seriously. The red states take it less seriously. The red states have a lot more distance between individuals. The blue states tend to be coastal cities. They're more dense. Maybe you could handicap for us the the spread of the virus with the layer on top of it of local governments and the political climate we're in. Yeah, I think you know the, the, the decentralized nature of the American system is both a blessing and a curse in this in this type of situation. The, the curse is that it's been very hard to create a unified national strategy. We're, we're doing lockdowns piecemeal. And, um, and so the, the lockdowns get thwarted as people move around between areas that are not locked down and start new outbreaks. Uh, very hard to control a virus that way. You know, we're also, um, you know, we're, we're also not able to act in, in the, in the authoritarian way that, that we saw China act in Wuhan to control the virus very early on. Um, but the blessing of decentralization is that it's allowed, um, 
you know, the, the governors of states to react, um, and it's allowed private companies to react, and it's allowed entrepreneurs to react. And you see a lot of people uh, helping in different ways, and um, and 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 that can be that can make up for um, having kind of a, a more ineffectual centralized response, which isn't likely to to, to work completely in a country the size anyway. Do you think that um, the health apparatus of the United States um, did its job? And where do you think the areas of opportunity are to improve? Well, the, if, if you're talking about the health system, it seems like the, um, the health system has done a great job in reacting to the virus in terms of um, hospitalizations, you know, hospital, adding hospital beds, adding ICU capacity. Even in New York, it looks like... Um, I think Cuomo just said today that they've got, you know, ICU capacity, they've got hospital beds. Um, I think the hospital system has done a, a great job rapidly creating more capacity. We haven't seen a situation like in Italy or even the UK where they're literally rational, uh, rationing ventilators and making horrible triage decisions about who's going to get a ventilator and who's not, you know, um, we haven't seen those types of horrors in the, in the U S but, um, but if by health system, we mean the FDA, the CDC, um, the WHO, which is part of the U.S. system, but we do rely on them to some extent. Um, you've just seen, I think, you know, amazing, um, r- r- really malpractice or negligence. If they were a pharma company, I think they'd be sued. You have to, you know, you have on the CDC website things that I haven't checked it today, but as of a few days ago were just blatantly not true. I mean, saying that you only needed a mask if you were actually taking care of a person with, uh, with, with COVID-19, that, um, that standing, say, a three-foot distance was sufficient, um, for, for that, that was sort of an acceptable amount of social distancing, even if the other person is coughing or sneezing, and that's not true. Um, they're just saying things that, that weren't true. And then, you know, on, on the... Um, you know, the, the, the CDC and the Surgeon General until basically the last few days were telling us that um, masks didn't work, were ineffective, didn't. And then now they've, they've, they've flipped to recommending them, um, but they're still not required. And um, I just wrote a blog today that I published about half an hour ago that... Um, I thought the best part of that blog post, by the way, it's up on Medium and, and Sachs has tweeted it and I retweeted it, uh, David, is what you said... At the end, which is we're taking the most draconian measure, quarantining people, which we use this softer term, shelter in place, but it's a quarantine, call it what it is. You're not allowed to leave your house except under rare circumstances. Um, but we won't do the basic thing of wearing the mask. It makes no sense. And Chamath, I think you had a really interesting question early on here, which I think we should all circle back on one more time, which is what what is this reveal, right? Like in this kind of a crisis, and I love the statement of uh, Sachs where – you know, some decades, nothing happens. And then a week you have a decade happen. The thing that I am, I think is the big takeaway for me is handicapping who you can trust and what people's agendas are and how they behave in a crisis. Because there are a group of people building models. And what is the motivation of somebody who builds a model? We think about, we all get pitched as investors or when we worked inside of companies, we build models and we know the models mean nothing. They're made by humans. And what's the motivation of somebody building a model in today's climate, that then people adopt that model and there's life or death. What would you handicap? Would you go conservative? Would you go aggressive? Would you lean into people dying in the case of 
supporting the economy. Uh, and so the mo- there's the model makers, there's the government, local and federal. You have the media who are trying to get clicks in some cases. You have the capitalists who are trying to, you know, protect their book and their bets. How, how do we all look at and think about people's agendas and like the CDC having an agenda, the local government and the model makers having agenda? Chamath, maybe you could take that one. Yeah, I um, I think that the masks issue is actually the most instructive thing uh, in this whole debacle. Um, and the reason is that there was pretty obvious data very early on that it was um, something that had unknown but pretty useful upside and absolutely zero deleterious downside. Right. So if you were thinking about risk management and I gave you some options, option one is do nothing. Option two is here's some drugs that you can take prophylactically. And I don't really know the either the efficacy or the long term damage to a broad based population of people taking them. And option three was a piece of cloth over your nose and mouth. Yeah. And <laughs> for 10 and cents. And apparently, at a minimum, it prevents other people from smelling your bad breath. But at a maximum, it prevents projectiles of of disease-laden spit getting into death, your orifice. Death vapor. Causing you to die. Yes. And and we couldn't agree that that was a Why? Reason- Why? You know Why? How- Is this, it was so, the agenda so- here because they didn't want people buying up the masks and no, 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 not no, no, going because, to healthcare workers? No, because Why couldn't we agree about- on something this simple? No. Because it was never about the N95 masks. You could have worn a cloth mask. A tea cloth could have covered it up and given you 70% efficacy. This has everything to do with incentives and everything to do with your other question as well, which is like, you know, how, why do modelers behave the way that they do? Um, all of this is about being taken seriously. And so to be taken seriously, you have to understand the incentives in the game that you're playing. So for a modeler and a forecaster, the incentive is all around being conservative because that's how you're taken seriously. There's nobody that has any upside in showing a model that shows 10,000 people dying. All of the attention and the, the gravity with which you're taken and the attention that you get is when you first put out a model that shows that 2 million people could die, which is what Imperial College did. And then eventually you walk it back and you walk it back. And after the actuals exceed the forecast, then the data converges on what actually happens. And you see that these models were woefully inaccurate. It's the same with why the CDC or the WHO are just so completely incompetent. Because the incentives in those organizations are essentially to play their game. And that game is not one of public health, but it's one of politics. Right. And so you have these people fighting each other over political territory and the right to basically make decisions versus the actual substance and the validity of the decision. David, does and, that does that correlate with your thinking and then superimpose the media on top of that? Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that um, th- there is a huge culture clash going on between the people who need conclusive scientific proof before they're willing to recommend any course of action. Um, and then between other people 
who are willing to take a more experimental approach to try things to iterate uh, the way that we do in startup land um, when confronted with kind of, um, you know, company existential issues. Um, and, and the latter approach is smart when, you know, there's a lot of upside in trying something and not much downside, you know, and, and the, and, and the, the, the other approach of this sort of this scientific, the pseudo scientific sounding approach where you're constantly demanding conclusive evidence, it's actually people pretending to be smart, you know, it's people who want to sound smart, but it's actually a pretty dumb approach. And so we've seen this like culture clash playing out over and over again. Um, you know, and, um, so experts, should read it, Peter, back to you, David. Experts are afraid to do something experimental with low downside because they have reputations and they want to sound smart. Whereas entrepreneurs, uh, or maybe capitalists or other problem solvers, or perhaps even gamblers are going to say, there's no downside here. What's the downside to putting a mask on? Nothing. Let's try it. The same thing with chloroquine and the Z pack. Very early on, people were saying, like Elon and other folks in our circle, why not just do well, it? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Chloroquine, let's not put that in the same category. Okay, this why? Is the point. Because it's a drug, Jason. Yes. It's a drug for malaria. Okay, but you have, on the you spectrum. You have zero evidence. So, no, no, Jason. Of taking it if you're it's sick already. No. We still don't know. Right. Let's be clear. Okay. So masks is a wholly different thing. This is why I said it that way. Yeah. You, sh you, if the, the minute you start to add drugs, you come off as a armchair epidemiologist and anybody reasonably smart can poke holes in your theory and you sound like a fucking moron. You cannot sound like a moron by telling people to wear cloth over their nose and their mouth. Okay. But the next step, if you were in the hospital and you've been diagnosed and they said, Hey, the doctor says, you might want to try this. There were people who were saying, don't even try it. And there was a direct correlation when Trump said he was behind it. It seemed like the media and everybody were like, this is the worst idea ever. No, no, no. But, but, but this is your point, which is that the incentives of that game are to politicize things versus think about what's in the best interest and the public health interests of either the United States or the world. But and aren't so we in agreement to try it? If you, were, if you were in the ICU and they said, hey, you want to try this, you wouldn't try it? No, but this is the problem is like the posture of the American in, uh, political infrastructure is broken. And moments like this shine a light on how broken it is. Because as David said, all of the testing and iteration, all of those things are must-haves in peacetime. They are nice-to-haves in wartime. Right. You don't have a time to walk around and test fire a gun and make sure this works and that works. The enemy is in front of you. You shoot and you fire and you aim later. Yeah. And in that posture, we have to have a set of rules that contemplate giving people at the ground floor on the border of, you know, where their life is at risk, the right to make a decision as well informed as it can be about what they can try to do to save their life. And Doctors need to be equally empowered. And, you know, we've effectively done that, but we just did it in fits and starts. And in that, there is all of this noise that delays the right decision, which is not that hydrochloroquine is good or bad, but it's that here's all the published data into the hands of the doctor who can actually read and understand it so that he or she and the patient can make a decision together. Yeah, agreed. Sachs, uh, what are your thoughts on chloroquine and the z-pack and, and that whole sort of unraveling of this is the miracle it's not the miracle it's worth looking at and how that debate occurred let's say on the twitter um and then also in our stream when we were talking 
Well, well, Trump was not the first to um, embrace the potential of hydroxychloroquine. Um, in fact, we were talking about it in our chat group before you know it became national news. Of course, once he did embrace it, it became uh, political football, and um, a lot of people wanted to prove him wrong. And so now it's hard to have a conversation about it without it becoming political. But the you know the argument for hydroxychloroquine really started with some research papers that showed that it worked in vitro, basically in test tubes against the virus. Um, and it worked against uh, SARS, um, you know, which is a related sort of category of virus. Um, I'm not, I'm not an expert or anything. This is just sort of, you know, me telling yeah. you what, what I, what I know is a consumer of information. Um, and so it was not um, crazy to think this is something that should be tried in the context of COVID-19. Um, now, we don't know if it's going to work or not. I saw um, an interesting presentation by UCSF, and their working theory on it is that, um, is that hydroxychloroquine plus ZPAC might have some impact in the first week uh, of the virus when uh, before peak viral replication takes place, and this might um, help interfere with the, the virus replicating. Once you're in respiratory distress, distress, though, and it's in your lungs, you have to, you're into a different phase of this and and um, they don't believe that they think you need to look at other things so um so it sounded like this was a potentially valid treatment in week one less effect in week two and you know by week three when you're in severe ARDS you know it's you got to find other things so um you know in terms of like what the right policy is um you know this you know, I, I'd be in favor of the right to try. I mean, ultimately, we should let patients and doctors make this decision together. And um, and so, you know, I think the FDA did the right thing, giving emergency uh, trial um, authorization to doctors to be able to uh, try this with their, their patients. And and what I think is happening is is that there's you know, sort of rapid decentralized information sharing happening among doctors and hospitals. And, you know, I think they're, they're getting to the right answer here. Okay. Do we, do we feel comfortable moving on to financial implications of this? Or are there things about the modeling? On, on upside, downside. I agree with Jamal that hydroxychloroquine is a little bit more complicated. Masks are sort of the really unambiguous one. Because sure. it's just so easy. There's so it's little down. It's just cloth. It's <laughs> cotton. Right. You literally... Could put a you bandana could use on. your underwear. Yeah. You could use your own underwear and just put it across your face. I mean, this is what's so insane that David's right. I remember having this argument with someone because on the CDC website, as David said, it would only recommend it not as a preventative measure for you, but if you were old, you should use a mask only if you were treating somebody with COVID-19. There, there, there's there's I mean, such an element of these authorities trying to manage us, you know, I, you know, I, I really hate that, that, um, I mean, I do think that th they thought about, um, will we create a run on mass? Well, you know, that, that, that they don't want to tell us the truth because they're afraid of some of the consequences of telling us the truth. And, you know, I hate that feeling of being lied to by public officials because they're trying to manage. I, I'm willing to be infantiled by people that are smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, so can you give us a list of the four people you think are smarter than you? Go ahead, Chamath. Give I us am, I am not who are those four people infantiled by nameless bureaucracies. And I think that Americans deserve to not be infantiled. I mean, for the amount of money that we pay and the amount in taxes and the amount of power that we give folks, 
the one thing that I'm realizing through this whole thing is like, you know, the it's, it, it is true in some respect that the countries that had some level of authoritarian management did well. But it's also true that the countries that had robust civil services filled with people who are at the top of their class also did well. Singapore, South Korea, where it is a stature, it's a point of pride to work for the government, where it's some of the Japan. best paying jobs. Japan. And, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I realize is like career bureaucrats um, really do infantile Americans in a way that's really unproductive and, and, and unhealthy. I mean, you know, it, doesn't it surprise you and kind of like perturb you that the ex head of the FDA is way more prominent and out front with his point of view than the current head of the FDA? I mean, what the hell is going on? I think what we know is going on is, I mean, Trump was elected and he 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 dismantled some of this and the system was broken I, when I th- he inherited I think it. I think, no, I think that that's unfair. And, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not a big Trump supporter, but I think it's unfair to pin it on him. The reality is maybe he defunded or underfunded a bunch of things, but the hollowing out of our institutions have been happening for 40 years and it ha- started with Reagan, to be clear. Because we tilted the scales towards free market trickle-down economics where government was viewed as a stop for really smart people to inject themselves into industry at higher levels. Or it was a place that capable people would never go because capitalism, the way that it was structured, was set up in such an aggressive, tilted manner for those that were capable. And uh, unfortunately, it hollowed out the government uh, from people that were uh, really strong of character in a broadly speaking kind of way. And so what happens is that then bureaucracies form, the incentives change, um, and you get what you've gotten right now, which is, again, uh, it, is a, uh, it, it, it is a point of argument on something as simple and, frankly, idiotic as a mask. To hear the rest of the episode, subscribe to the All In Podcast available across all major podcasting platforms. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at the all in pod.